Welcome to 2021 and a new episode of the Herbert Kane podcast. I'm really, really excited today to be joined by Wasim Debussy. Now, Wasim is a business strategist. He's a motivational speaker. He's a performance and life coach. He's incredibly active on LinkedIn, sharing motivational and inspiring stories from Sydney, Australia, uh, originally from Lebanon. He moved from Lebanon to Australia when he was just 10 years old. So in today's episode we're going to focus on that cultural shift that he found and that how it affected his identity moving at such a young age because one of the things about Wasim's life is that he developed some unhealthy addictions one of those was food so we're going to hear about his battle as a man overcoming a food addiction but there was a real dark time in his life where he contemplated suicide but he got through some of those dark times by asking a bigger than me why question bigger than me why question is a fantastic story of how he overcame adversity now if this is your first time here i want to welcome you to the herbert kane podcast we release new content every week please like and share um, and if you know of any interesting stories or great guests i had a lot of messages over the holiday season really good to hear from you guys that listen in week in week out so so please let me know what you're thinking of the episodes and if you do know someone that you feel I should reach out to to, to talk to, please um, contact me either via LinkedIn or via my Instagram page, which is just at Simon Osimo. So without further ado, let's dive into this week's episode as we kick off a new year with what I've titled How a Change of Culture Affected My Childhood with Wasim Debussy. Welcome to the Who I Became podcast. Introduce today Wasim Debussy from Sydney, Australia, and hopefully um, I've got your name correct. I'm terrible with pronunciations. You got my name really, really well, mate. That's actually very well pronounced. Thank you very much for having me on your show, Simon. Yeah, well, no, well, welcome. And I know me and you connected um, via LinkedIn because I saw one of your posts, and it really intrigued me. I was thinking, I know my listeners of Herbert Came are going to get a lot out of a conversation um, with you. And one of the things that I love was your openness and transparency. So, you know, really pleased that you're you're joining me. So maybe start off telling um, the listeners a little bit about who you are and the work that you do. Okay, so um, I'm a migrant to Australia. I've been here for about 32 years now. I came when I was um, 10 years old. Um, my entrepreneurial journey started about 17 or almost 18 years ago now, 2003. Currently, I work with um, entrepreneurs helping them build sustainable online businesses. Yeah, and one of the things that really um, struck me when I saw your your LinkedIn post and you sort of touched on is that, you know, you've been an immigrant to um, Australia and I know that you moved from Lebanon when you were around 10 years old. And so, um, you know, Australia was a bit like England, but very much, much more so than England. It's a real melting pot of different cultures. What was the transition like from going from Lebanon, where I'm assuming you spoke little English, to, to then to Australia? I actually spoke no English because, um, as most people may or may not know, as a lot of people do know, Lebanon was colonized by the French, not the English. So French was the second language that we learned in Lebanon. So I came to Australia speaking Arabic is my first language. French is my second language. Knew not a single word of English. So the transition for me was actually really um, challenging 
quite early on, coming from a war-torn country, coming from a country where I've seen, you know, uh, there was civil war growing up in Lebanon, so I've seen a lot of uh, fighting. You know, we had to spend a lot of times up in the mountains, away from the cities where all the, where all the, you know, the fighting was happening. And then coming to Australia, it was a peaceful country, but I had to, I suppose, I had to fight my own battles to find who I am and who my identity is as a new Australian who spoke no English, trying to find where I fit in society and being such a massive melting pot, it can be challenging for a teenager in Australia. Yeah, so how was that transition then? So, I mean, from when you then moved, um, was there a period that you didn't go to school? Did you go straight into the education system in Australia? Tell us a little bit about, you know, the sort of maybe what the first week or two weeks looked like for you when you when you arrived from Lebanon. Um. From 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 the from the memory that I from my memory serves me right, I pretty much went into schooling straight away. I think maybe it was like a few days or a week or so before we went into school. Um, we came out here. We stayed with my uh, father's brother, so my uncle, who had already set my dad up with a job, um, and we stayed with them. We had we chipped. My parents had chipped everything. They had no money to buy new furniture or anything. So. We pretty much packed everything we had in the house in Lebanon in a shipping container, put it on a ship, and then we flew out to Australia. The first three months were very challenging. We just went from house to house, from one uncle to another uncle. We spent a couple of weeks here, a couple of weeks there, and they all accommodated us uh, until our shipping container arrived to Australia. But come entering school, we pretty much went into school straight away within a couple of days or even a week. But it obviously didn't go into mainstream classes. We went into what they called, um, uh, oh, I can't remember the name of it back then, but now it's called English as a Second Language. So we went into a special education class where my sister and I and other students, you know, that were that had challenges with the language would go in there to learn the, the English language. So we were pretty much, I mean, you know, during school, like during recess and lunch, we weren't segregated, but throughout the day, we were pretty much segregated from the rest of the school. Yeah, and so, I mean, that must have brought challenges as well, but, you know, you go to a different country, different culture, we can't speak the language, you're put into this um, sort of special needs, if you like, special ed for those that have English as a second language, so you're already at a sort of a bit of a disadvantage. I mean, what was there? Was there bullying? Was there name-calling? What, what did the integration look like when you sort of, um, uh, you know, first started to go to school? Well, funnily enough, I remember this one kid um, in my ESL class who was born in Australia, but he spoke, his English was really, really bad. And the bullying started from him. And he was in the class with us. Um, and the bullying started with him against me and my sister. Um, and we stayed at that school for a couple of months. We started to learn a bit of English and whatnot. And then we got integrated into mainstream. So by the time I got into year five, I was integrated into mainstream classes, but still I was put into uh, you know, the, the lowest classes where the challenge students were. Um, because of the challenges we had in understanding language. Um, so that caused another whole bunch of issues because you are in, you know, the the you know the supposed dumb classes at the time. So during recess and lunch, you were always in our car. So growing up was really challenging up until about year 11. 
Yeah, and what about um, maybe sort of cultural barriers that might have existed? Like I said, I mean, Australia is like England. It is a big melting pot um, of different nationalities and different um, cultures and ethnicities. Uh, what was it like um, sort of culturally for you there? Was there any sort of racism that you felt or any sort of prejudice towards you being a sort of a, a foreign national coming to the school? I definitely did. Definitely growing up, one of the challenges that we had was my parents decided to move to an area in southwest Sydney where there was a high Asian um, population. So I'm pretty sure just like England, um, when different cultures come, they start to congregate around the same type of area. So you start having different suburbs that are all known for different cultures. So, you know, my when my uncle first lived, there was a lot of Lebanese, a lot of Middle Eastern people living there. But one of my aunties lived in an area where there was a high Asian community. So my parents moved there and I still hadn't had my own strong identity yet. So I was already in Northern Australia and I was a Lebanese and I was sitting in, in another, you know, high Asian population where, again, I didn't fit in. So that was really, really challenging for me during, you know, probably from year six to about year eight, year nine, until I started to find who I am and stand up for who I am and speak up for what I believed in. Um, and that caused its own challenges because during that time, um, where we live, we're just on the outskirts of the drug capital of Australia. And there was a lot of violence, a lot of gang violence there. And staying out of that was very challenging and keeping your head out of water, out of yeah. Um, water. Yeah, and it must be very interesting because, um, you know, I immigrated to the US uh, nine years ago, now in my, in my 40s. So I'm very much... Yeah, English, a strong culture. And at some point, I'm sure I'll go on to become a US um, national, but I'll always have a sort of a strong sense of identity. But with you just being 10 years old, um, it's very sort of difficult to sort of merge those two cultures. So I guess, um, have you ever sort of reflected in your life or people sort of raised to you surrounding, are you Lebanese? Are you Australian? Do the two cultures sort of merge, merge together? So I guess, you know, looking back on your, on your life, what, what do you say you are now? Well, right now, I definitely identify as a Lebanese Australian because Lebanon was, is where I born, where I was born. So I do identify with my heritage. My children identify as Australians because my wife is, again, from a different culture. I married due to an Italian culture. But funnily about what you said, you know, in my early teens, we went back to Lebanon about three years, um, three or four years after being in Australia, we went back to visit with my family. And when I went back to Lebanon, yeah, my cousins and my aunties and, yeah, I was no longer, I was called the Aussie. So that was a culture shock for me. Like, oh, here comes the Aussies. You guys are Aussies now. I'm like, I grew up with you guys. Like, yeah, my aunties brought me up when my mom was at work. They'd look after me. Like, they weren't doing it in a, um, in a, in a racial way or in a discriminatory way, but I was labelled as an Aussie because I'd lived in Australia for four years. They still loved me. They were very, very kind to me. They were family, obviously. But it was a bit of a shock because in Australia I was called the Lebo and then I go to Lebanon and I was called the Aussie and I was like, well, where do I fit? And being 12, 13 at the time, that was really challenging. And my, there was a massive cultural um, gap between my parents and I because they didn't understand the Australian culture. You know, they've only been in Australia for four years. So, you know, they didn't. My parents came out here purely with the intention, we'll be out in Australia for a few years, we'll make a lot of money, and then we'll go back to Lebanon and live there. And that never actually happens. A lot of yeah. people come out with that intention. So my parents didn't really 
you know, integrate straight away into the culture. Now they have 30 years into it and they've realized, well, you know what, they've gone back to Lebanon, they've realized they can't live there. So they started to integrate after going back and recognizing that, you know, it's no longer a valid, um, viable solution to go back. They start to integrate. But in the beginning, my parents were holding on to their culture so hard, so much, and I was trying to, you know, integrate into the Australian culture as well as hold on to my culture. And that was really, really challenging for me where I, I had a very – um, I had an identity crisis. Yeah, and I'm sure it must be um, difficult because, like we have said, you know, you are trapped between um, two different cultures. You know, you're, you're young. I mean, we're sort of talking about someone of, of 10 years old. Um, and I know one of the reasons why I wanted to sort of do this conversation with you is that um, I, I loved your transparency. Like I said, when I, I saw some of your postings on LinkedIn were about some of the food addictions that you've had, you know, and you sort of have a, and there's some unhealthy addictions that you developed. And I think there was a, there was a uh, sort of a direct correlation between that transition in your life as being a young child coming to a foreign country and, and developing those sort of unhealthy addictions and one around um, food. So do you mind telling us a bit about um, how that food addiction developed and then perhaps how you sort of tie that into uh, you trying to transition into Australian society? So, yes, yeah, so for me, you know, Growing up, and I started getting, and I went to another school where it was a lot more multiculturalism. So there was people from all different cultures. So there was a bit, a lot more um, acceptance of who I am. There was no more, you know, there was people from Italian background, Asian, Australian, Greek, Lebanese, Middle Eastern, from all over the world. And it was quite an even mix. So when you had that, there was no longer this um, ostracization for being one different, one particular culture, one particular race. So in there, for me to fit in, you know, being young kids that had bring bring foods from all over the um, all over the, the the world, bringing in food, we started socialising over food. And when we got a little bit older, now 17, 18 year olds, food became a place where we actually I started feeling love because that's where I started making friends around food. And being young and not developed enough, obviously on a personal level, personal development level, I started associating love and friendship with food and then whenever i would have a dark moment or i'd feel alone i would always resort to eating food and i'd reach about 100 kilos by my mid-20s um and i got married to an italian so that i didn't help there's more food involved there (laughs) i got married to an italian and my wife and i loved our food so there was a lot of food early on in our relationship and we yeah with the family and everything else and it just became a place of security and a place of safety when you're around food for me. And I had to teach myself from that. Yeah. And I guess um, one thing for a man, it's very difficult for us as men to admit sort of faults and weaknesses we have. It's just just not how, I don't think it's in our DNA for some reason. We we, we just, we can't be open and transparent with ourselves. Um, But when did you realize that this sort of eating, um, overeating was becoming a problem? I mean, there's a thin line between sort of doing something excessively and, and perhaps an addiction. I mean, you say you had an addiction to food, uh, when did you realize that it had perhaps got out of control uh, and then we'll move on to the sort of cause of it? Um, it was quite an embarrassing moment actually. And as I just started a new job, I was a sales rep and I was just leaving an appointment at Monday morning. I was a rookie rep. I'd just come out of six weeks training in the head office. I'd come out of an appointment with a, uh, with a, pro- with a customer and I'm getting in my car and 
because I was parked in a tight spot, I split my pants. And it was very, very embarrassing for me. I had to call my manager to go home. And it was at that moment I said, enough is enough. Yeah, interesting. So you, um, you know, there's a, a, I guess the the realization was that, you know, I guess the the embarrassment of your, um, against yourself caused you to say, you know, this isn't what I want to be anymore. And then you sort of, you know, you sort of changed, changed for now. And it's, um, was there any, um, I gravitated towards, you know, us being men, it's sometimes difficult for us to sort of talk about these things. Um, was there anyone at that time that you could talk about? I mean, did, was this something that you discussed with your friends? Was anyone saying to you, hey, Wasim, you know, maybe you're getting um, overweight or you're eating too much? I mean, what was, what did that journey look like? I had my, I remember my dad saying something to me, but I brushed it off and I said, you know, dad, you're just being judgmental. Um, that's, and I think, you know, for me, up until I went to my first personal development event, I was living in a in a fixed mindset, in an undiagnosed fixed mindset. I had no idea I had a fixed mindset until I opened up my eyes by going to my first Tony Robbins event. And it was then that I started understanding there's a lot more to the world than this little bubble that I created for myself, where I pushed everything and everybody else out and not not you know explored what's the you know, what's available in the world. But on the opposite to that, I actually didn't have anybody to speak to. I didn't have anybody to say that to me other than my dad who made a comment once that I remember. But when I did actually decide to lose weight, I remember one of my close friends from university who I'd lived with for a while, and I said to him, I'm going to do this, this, and this. And he just looked at me blankly in the eye and said, you're not going to do this because you won't lose the weight. And I think that was another trigger. I was like a chip on the shoulder. I was like, no, mate. I'm going to prove you wrong. And then I, and I would do a scene for about a year, a year and a half. Then I saw him again. He was like, whoa, what happened to you? I go, you remember what you said to me? I go, you actually pushed me to do this even more. Yeah. I, you gave me that drive. And I know one of the things that you said, and like I said, I've been so touched by your openness about some of these subjects. And uh, when we were talking about this, you said that you had a weak mindset. And maybe that's tied into some of the Tony Robbins motivation. And we'll touch a bit later about you being a a life coach and performance coach. Um, But um, do do you feel that you had a weak mindset as to that's why you couldn't fight this this addiction? And then you had the realization that this isn't how I want to live my life. I've I've got to change. I I think... um... I would say I had a fixed mindset, not a weak mindset. I've always been the type of person, if I put my mind to something, I would always achieve it. But I had a fixed mindset in the terms of not knowing my own potential. I didn't know how much I can achieve. Um, and I'd always held myself back until I went to my first Tony Robbins event. Um, I always played very, very small, thinking just do a little bit, you know. I'd always play, bl- uh, lay blame for when things went wrong. Um, I would strive for something. If I didn't achieve it, I would blame other people or other situations or external factors for the reason why I failed. That's what I meant by a weak or fixed mindset, that I didn't have that accountability. But when I did achieve things, like I I was able to finish finish high school, end up at university at a time where a lot of my friends just didn't end up making it to uni because of the, yeah, the environment we're in, I was able to achieve that, but I didn't have that abundant mindset where I can be, do, have anything I want. So one of the other things that struck me about your openness and honesty was that there was a, another uh, sort of dark place when you're on the verge of suicide 
Um, but what I uh, really love about your transformation is that how you managed to pull yourself out of that. So maybe if you don't mind, share what you can about the, the period in your in time when you were contemplating uh, committing suicide. Great question, Simon. Um, I think one of the things that's very important to point out here, first of all, is when I did have those dark moments in my life where I did contemplate, you know, ending it all and I'll be driving down a road and just thinking to myself, you know, swerve of the steering wheel would end this and everything will be gone. I started my personal development journey. And a lot of people tend to think that once you start a personal development journey, they see you're fixed or you go to one event and you're fixed. And the reality is you're not. For me, it's been a roller coaster. There's been highs, there's been lows, there's been highs in business, there's been lows in business, in health, in relationship. And it was at a time where I'd lost a lot of money in my business. I'd lost $100,000 in a day. Um, I had challenges in my relationship. So it was at those times the thought would come to me how easy it would be to just end it all and no longer have these challenges. But it was the personal development that, brought me back remembering and being and being grateful for the things I have and who I'd leave behind and you know all the other opportunities still available to me. Had those same challenges come to me, say before I started my personal development journey, I don't know whether that mindset would have been able to get out of it. So the main thing here is just because you are on a personal development journey, don't think you're not face you're not going to face challenges because you will face challenges. And those, the personal development is going to help you overcome and deal with them better. Yeah, and it's um, so interesting when you when you talk about that specifically to meet someone who's come out the the other side. But I know from emigrated at a young age, from ten from Lebanon to Australia, um, you know, uh, trying to find your way as to where you know what is my purpose in the world. I know it led you to um, some sort of um, some little periods of reflection i know that at one point you told me off offline that you sort of you felt you sort of suffered from an emotional lack of um emotional intelligence uh, but i know that we spoke about your parents and in a respectful way you said it was the transition was also hard on your parents and they didn't really necessarily tee you up for success in the move so if you don't mind tell us a little bit about what you meant by that but your parents and but for your parents struggling the immigration it then sort of um, also affected you and your your siblings yeah i mean first of all i think it's very important to mention that i believe everybody does the best they can with the tools they have and even though my parents you know coming to coming out to australia they had a fixed mindset i mean they grew up most of their life they got married they started a family in a country where there was civil war where i'd remember as a child um you know, a soldier would come up to me and be walking with my parents or be in the car, would get pulled over and the soldier would come up and the soldier wouldn't ask my dad for ID, but he would look at me as a five, six-year-old child and go, where does daddy keep his gun? You know, it was that type of entrapment that my parents had to constantly live with and that fear that they still brought with them when they came to Australia and put on top of that, they knew nothing about the culture my mom was like me. She was she was a teacher, so my mom was a teacher, but she spoke only French. My dad had a little bit of English education, but he dropped out of high school at year eight to start working. So they had a very fixed mindset. So they did the best they can. But now I think back, you know, some of the advice that they gave me, the direction they pushed me. I mean, I wanted to become a psychologist, and my parents, you know, uh, diverted me from that at a young age, and. 
So they did the best they can. And then even when they came out here, it took them five or six years for them to accept the idea that they're here for life now, that this is now home because they never came with that intention. They came here with the intention of, you know, the dream coming to Australia, making, making a lot of money, you know, 50, a hundred thousand dollars going back. And that's a lot of money for them back then. Um, but obviously when you do come to Australia and you realize, no, it's not that easy. You've got to work and there's, you know, there's laws and taxes and whatnot. So it took my parents five or six years to, um, uh, accept that reality. And because of that, they had a lot of fixed mindset that up until today, they still carry with them, unfortunately. I know when we were talking offline, um, the question of sort of validation um, came up. And I said, you know, through your um, the move from Lebanon to your addiction with food, I think I asked you, um, you know, what were you searching for? Particularly a lot of us are searching for something, a purpose, you know, a reason why we're here. I mean, through your through your addictions and the difficult transition you had, uh, what was it that you were searching for? Well, during those times, I think I just, I wanted connection. Um, I really want connection and significance. Thinking back, I think significance was a very big driver for me for all my human needs. Um, I lived a lot of my life from, um, from a place of wanting significance. And now that I think back about some of the mistakes that I've made in my life, you know, some of the um, people that I may have heard, some people I've let go of my life, a lot of it did come from significance. So for me, a lot of those addictions were coming from significance that I'm part of a community, that I'm part of people. And, you know, I was the best eater. I could eat the biggest. I remember there were times when I would have barbecues with some mates and we would literally have competitions and who can eat the most skewers of meat. Um, so it came a lot of that came from that cultural significance for me. And until I changed that, uh, my primary human need from significance to growth and now contribution, that I was able to change who I am at the core. And um, it's interesting you, you, you say that, but using the word significance, I think um, that's another word where, you know, live a life of significance, isn't it? You know, so it's fascinating that you use that. And, you know, when you look now, and I know when we and you spoke offline, it's really weird that we're, we're the same age, for a few days it was like uh, separated at birth for scene but um how would you you know where you stand now from all the struggles that you've you've had in your life uh, what's the best advice you could give to someone about how to overcome adversity no matter what it is whether it's addiction where it's been a young child living into a, a new culture whether it's sort of you know, their parents trying to adapt to a new culture what's the best advice you can give people um, about how to overcome adversity First of all, I think you know, when it comes to addiction and whatnot, for me, what helped me overcome that is a bigger than me why. Um, and, you know, when I had those challenges with my weight, it was when I had children and I looked at my, myself and my wife at the time, because I've got to admit, at the time, we were both very overweight. And it was like, is this the kind of role model we want to be for our children? And we knew we weren't the right type of role models for our children. So that was a bigger than us why. It's not a selfish thing. Now, when I was talking about significance, significance at that time was I'm coming from a place of significance where I wanted to be significant because I was selfish. Living a life of significance for me now means living a life on purpose and leaving a legacy behind where I'm making a positive impact on the world. Whether it's just my children looking up to me and saying, looking up to me like you know for example one of the things that over the past couple of days i've been helping my kids with a shopify store and now 
my eldest son has realized, you know, he works for me. I own a gym also. So he works for me at the gym and he gets paid same wage as everybody else. He gets paid minimum wage for his age, you know, gets no special treatment. And he's all, I'm also helping him at home with the Shopify store and he can re, he can see the difference that, you know what, this online business, I can make more money in a quarter of the amount of work that I'm working in the gym. And that to me is what it means to have significance. That to me is what it means to live a life of purpose is where I'm making that positive impact. So if anybody's in that fixed mindset or they have those struggles in life, remember the bigger picture. What is it you want people to say about you when you're gone? What's the purpose? What's the legacy that you want to leave that people are going to say, person X did this or person Y, even if it's one person? Yeah, and the... um Again, you know, uh, we had a, a long conversation offline um, to, to get to here today. It was a great conversation. And another thing that you mentioned, which I think ties into you being a, a life and performance coach, and, and we'll sort of uh, maybe maybe end on that, was it's okay to seek external help. Um, and I know from my, my time in law enforcement, there's many things, what I saw, which you'd hope and pray that people in society don't see, and it was just... Know, get on with it push it aside move forward well it's actually okay to see external help to to grow and to sort of rationalize uh, life events so maybe tell us a bit about your your life coaching that you do now we yeah i'd love to i mean for me i because of the challenges i've had because i know the difference that the right mindset can actually give and and the kind of life you can live and the happiness that you can have just by deciding to be happy, which, you know, if you ask me, if you said to me 20 years ago, was well, saying just decide to be happy and you'll be happy, I would have said to you, you have no idea what you're talking about. You don't know the life I lived. But it's been a progress and, and, you know, an awakening, if you like, where I've realized happiness is a decision. I can wake up every morning. And I never was a morning person. I hated waking up in the morning. Now I'm up at 4 a.m., without an alarm you know i wake up wait for my alarm so i can get up instead of my alarm waking me up and that is a mindset you make a decision to be happy so the things that i do with my clients is get them to see their full potential get them to remove those blocks in their own life because i guarantee most of the people i've ever worked with the biggest hurdle i can even say every single person i've ever worked with the biggest hurdle for them has been them. It's been that man in the mirror or that woman in the mirror that's looking back at them. So the work that I do is help the help you fall in love with who you see in the mirror. Because once you fall in love with who you see in the mirror, your life will change. Because then you'll see the love and abundance of love that's in your life. You'll see the abundance of opportunities that's in your life. And you'll become a different person at your core and you start attracting better quality people into your life and, and you know, pushing away the toxic people without having to do anything to push them away. They will, re- they will just realize they're no longer vibrating your vibration and you have raised right, rose above that and start attracting people at the right level that you want to be. Uh, and that is a great um, sentiment and, and statement there. And how did you um, get to that position? I mean, you, there's a lot of depth to what you just said, and you can tell there's a lot of passion in there. You know, how, how did you get to that position, or when did you get to that position? I, it took me 20 years. Actually, 20, 
22 years it took me to get to this position. For me, at a young age, I knew I wanted to become a psychologist. At a young age, I actually got into university for psychology. And like I said, my parents, God bless them, they did the best they can. They didn't see future in psychology. They persuaded me from changing that to a completely different field in IT, which, look, I love IT. I'm a very tech-savvy person. I'm an early adopter, but it's not a passion that I want to work in. The human mind is the technology of the human mind is what I love. So I followed my parents' um, advice. I went into IT and I, I studied for four and a half years in a degree and I hated my life. A year and a half into IT, I quit. And it's been searching. I went from IT to you know, uh, teaching, to sales, to having my own marketing business, to owning a gym, to owning cafes, to being in pharmaceuticals. All of these things have just come to you know, uh, 2019 when I found myself without a job in the corporate world anymore and I realised, you know what, enough is enough. I don't want to live in other people's shadows or other people's dreams. I've always wanted to help and serve and you know, make the world a better place and that's where I got to where I am. But I think back, everything that's ever happened to me has led me here and they've all given me the wisdom, the experiences, to know how to help and deal with other people. Yeah, and I think for all your experiences from from a child to where you stand today, I guess, would you believe, Wasim, that everyone has that transformation inside them? Everyone has a purpose, but sometimes they need help to, to draw that out. Um, I mean, for you, for you, it was time, but what would you say to, to that? 100%. That is like that statement is 100% correct. Every single person in this world has something to give. Every person in this world has more to give than what they're allowing themselves to give. They've got more to life. So if you're facing any challenges right now, and 2020 has been a challenging year for everybody, including myself, this year is a year for growth. If you look at it as a blessing for you to grow, you'll be surprised the type of person you become on the other end. So I do believe every single person has a lot to give to the world. If they make the decision to face the challenges that will come with making those changes, because the reward on the other end is very, very substantial. Yeah, Wasim, it's been um, from when I read your first post on LinkedIn to, to me and you talking offline and to going through this conversation, it's been very uh, inspiring, very heartfelt and very, very deep in some of the areas that we've we've touched. And um, I'm sure there's some people that are going to listen to this podcast that can relate to, to what you what you say. Um, and, and if they do, I'd ask them to sort of, you know, search, search deeper. And and if they know someone that could be going through some of the issues that you've gone through. Again, you know, it'd be great if they would share share this information. So I believe that we learn through the lives of others. So it's been an honour and a privilege to to talk to you today. So what is the best way uh, you are a life coach, which is a very modern occupation, um, and there's, there's life coaches everywhere. But I mean, you've certainly got the background to say, um, you know, you uh, people should contact you. But what is the best place for people to get hold of you, Wasim, if they're interested in learning more about uh, life coaching? So wasimdabusi.com, or just look me up on Facebook or LinkedIn. Pretty much any social media, I've got an account. Facebook and LinkedIn are the main two that I look uh, that I use. So look up Wasim Debussy. Um, you're not many not many people with a name like mine, so it wouldn't be too hard for you to find me. So wasimdabusi.com or LinkedIn or Facebook is probably the best way to find me. 
Yeah, and what I'll do within this podcast, I'll put all the your, your links for social media in there because uh, you, like me, have a last name of Osimo and Debussy. They're, they're not, they don't roll off the tongue like you know, John Smith and stuff, so it'll help people find you. But uh, again, you know, um, really grateful that you took the time to speak for me and take us through some of your, your personal um, journey. So um, thank you for joining me on, on Who I Became. Thank you very much. I appreciate it, and I look forward to speaking to you again. I'm Simon. Thank you for joining us for the Who I Became podcast. If you are enjoying the discussions between Simon and his guests, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review, as well as share with your friends on social media. Once again, thank you for joining the Who I Became podcast.